I'm Kelsey Zeiser. I'm a senior editor here at Light Reading, and you're listening to the Light Reading Podcast. Hello, I'm Phil Harvey. I'm an editor also here at Light Reading. And I'm Andrew Cowden. I'm the general manager for software networking at IBM. Thanks for joining us, Andrew. Happy to be here. It's great. Yeah, and we're talking offline. You have a lovely background. Um, I mean, for those just listening to the audio, can't see it, but I'm a little yeah. jealous of the real, yeah, real, real background. Real. <laughs> Looks so he doesn't nice. Do the thing where his arm disappears if he. <laughs> <laughs> and those of us who've been on too many Zoom calls, we yeah. it's like I promise it's real. <laughs> um, now we, uh, Andrew, the last time I spoke with you, uh, I think we were in your offices at, at uh, Lumina. Uh, yes, a, a long time ago. This was you know pre-pandemic and all that stuff. Um, yeah, uh, yeah. And uh, and now you're. Uh, what is your what is your official title at uh, at IBM? Yeah, so so GM Software Networking. So um, so I, I joined IBM two years ago. And um, really, with the ambitions of IBM to um, d- deliver a whole sequence of networking products, um, obviously IBM hasn't spent a lot of time or effort in networking for quite some time. Um, but we recognise that this is a kind of unique opportunity at the moment with the move to cloud, um, the move to well, multiple clouds actually, um, the move to software, and so we thought it was a, a great time to um, for, for IBM to be fully back into the networking business from an automation, orchestration, analytics perspective. Um, so that's really been the, the, the two-year journey um, that, that I've been on since I joined. How did, um, uh, how did, how did that transition go from uh, you know, what you were doing at Lumina Networks to, to what you're doing at, at IBM? Or, or how would, I, I guess, how would you say, because uh, I, I know you've had a, an extensive <laughs> career in telecom and networking. That's um, right. <laughs> But but that one was particularly interesting because of the software, uh, you know, the uh, uh, I guess the ambition behind, you know, uh, software defined networking in a way that we hadn't really, uh, you know, hadn't really seen uh, before. That's right. And and so obviously I've kind of moved from startup to very large company, kind of go from one extreme to the other. Um, but we're really running a startup within IBM um, in, to the extent that um, you know, we built the team um, pretty much from scratch. Um, you know, we're, we're operating in a very entrepreneurial spirit within IBM. Um, and that's really a kind of representative of the way that, that IBM operates today. We, you know, we're, we, we want to be fast moving. We want to um, do acquisitions quickly and, and, and bring technologies into the company. Um, and so it, it's been a great experience um, and, and, and obviously um, a lot easier to do that um, within the construct of IBM <laughs> do that, you know, in the construct of a startup, um, without all the support and ecosystem that sits behind it. So, um, so yeah, it's been, it's been a great journey. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, the multi-cloud earlier, uh, what, what are some things that IBM's doing, um, working with your customers on multi-cloud and, um, how have things changed, um, you know, uh, since the pandemic with so many people, um, working from home, but also in the office, how have your customer strategies around the multi-cloud changed? Yeah, I, I think it's been a very interesting journey. I, I think if you go back, you know, five or six years, I don't think any could, anybody would have predicted there'd be so many clouds that people, you know, that enterprises would consume. And, um, you know, it, it's not like enterprises stop at one or two, they keep going three, four, five uh, and more. Um, and every cloud is, is there for a very specific purpose. Um, here at IBM, we focus our cloud on a, a lot of it on, on financial services and, and you know, high security types services and environments like that. Um, and so, 
this has created a lot of challenge. It's, it's interesting as a networking industry, if you think about it, we've kind of solved the problem of, of connectivity. So you can get anywhere from anywhere. And, and obviously, you know, we're still filling in some of the blanks in rural areas and so on, but that, that problem's kind of solved. The issue now is the inverse, which is how do you know where your traffic goes uh, if, if you're no longer, it's no longer in your, in your network or you're responsible for it? And if you think about how large enterprises and, and telcos have built out you know, these massive global networks and you know, they, they've managed every bit from every location. And today the traffic flows between AWS and Azure and IBM and Google and everybody else. And then to your point that when we started working from home, um, then we weren't using the corporate intranet there either, right? We, we just expected the internet to work. So, so we've kind of moved from this world of a very tightly controlled and managed environment to, um, well, frankly, as far as network managers are concerned, total chaos. <laughs> and, and it's a, a kind of vast extreme. So if, if you go sit down and have a, a, a chat with a, the head of any large enterprise's network teams, it kind of turns into a therapy session. It's, it's kind of really interesting. Like, you wouldn't believe what happened last week. <laughs> how is the cloud? How does it make you feel? Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm so angry at clouds right now. I'm oh, sorry. I'm just too old. <laughs> and it, it's, just, it's just crazy. So... Um, so one of the things that we kind of recognized was that there was a need to bring a lot more control and visibility to the traffic that's flying between the clouds. Um, and so, um, you know, we, we've, we've gone through a sequence of products, deliveries, um, organically and acquisitions. So, for example, um, we acquired a company um, called Turbonomic, or self one, um, about 18 months ago. And that's given us very deep application visibility into the network. Um, so what applications are running, what performance is there? And it's, as you know, there's not like a, a red light anymore, right? Well, something isn't like up or down. It kind of has this somewhere in between <laughs> kind of state where it just kind of slows down a bit. And so that, those are the hardest problems, if you like, to go solve. It's like, why is this slow right now? Is it is it the application? Is it the network? And of course, there's all these different network components in the middle, like load balancers, um, different paths that you can take and so on. So, so one of the things that you know I, we, we found really important to the kind of management of, of networks, you know, telco scale and, and large enterprise, is um, when something breaks, it's usually one of n things break. Like one load balancer out of five is now dead, and you may not notice that as a problem, but come Monday morning at nine a.m., everybody's not doing the network. Now you're going to have a problem. So a fun begins. Um, Kind of predicting what's going to happen and using some AI to go do, to go do that as a consequence of it. It's not the it failed that you want to answer the so what question. Um, so that's that's been important. And then just the orchestration. You know, how, how do you configure and manage SD WAN connections into cloud? And it's by the way, if you go ask a telco that, it's it's and, and ask them how long it takes. Right, you have a customer. And they say to a telco, can you connect me, connect your SD WAN box, my, my network to AWS, please? Six weeks, eight weeks, minimum time period. And, and the telco will ask for the AWS credentials from the customer. Can you give me your username and password so I can? Oh, yeah, you? that's secure. Right? Job that's crazy. Open. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, we, so we've, uh, through a, a product we have called CloudPack for Network Automation, you know, we, we've got that down to about 30, 40 seconds. And automated it. So just give us the, you know, securely provide the credentials for AWS. Tell us what box you got. Oh, it's a, it's a file cloud box, but okay. Now we'll go configure that. And so we're trying to 
make all these kind of hard things within the network automation cycle easy. Um, and, you know, and, and obviously through every acquisition we do, through every organic development that we do, we, we're kind of getting more and more into this. How do you manage holistically this uh, heterogeneous environment that you don't control anymore directly? Mm-hmm. And that's that's really um, kind of our mission and, and, and why we think there's such a huge opportunity in this market space. And how does, um, you know, we're, we're talking about therapy, <laughs> the chaos earlier, how, how does that influence um, edge computing? How do, how, do you, um, how do you provide some therapy for your customers there? <laughs> <laughs> therapy at the edge. Yeah. It's, um, <laughs> I, that, that's just it's, it's extra dimensions, right? So I, I, I guess we, we, we're kind of categorizing edge into two, two buckets, right? We've got um, what I guess has been called the far edge, right? So edge devices that have some level of compute involved in them and then you know in telco land what they regard as edge or mech or you know what they're now turning their central offices into into compute um so let's kind of deal with the the far edge first like you know it's, it, i think that's really interesting because um we're now placing ai capabilities at that far edge and that, that programmability that needs to happen so I have, I have a chocolate factory example, which I, I just love. Right? Cause everybody loves chocolate. Oh, yes. I could talk about so, it all day. Let's do that. So, Tell me so more. About, <laughs> about making chocolates, right? So you know, a chocolate production line and um, there's machines all spitting out chocolates. That's, that's a wrong word, isn't it? It's producing chocolates and they're coming out. And you've got a camera that looks down the chocolate and it's got about 40 milliseconds to make a decision. Is this a good chocolate or a bad chocolate? Um, Are there so, bad chocolates? Yeah. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Well, like it's misshaped, <laughs> or it's got some of that filling coming out, or it's it's like the product didn't mix properly, or I don't know, something bad happened to yeah. it. Right? You can reroute so this to my house. There's no problem. Yeah. That being a free product that the, the workers get to take home. Mm, yeah. that, that's, that's what you're looking for. So, um, so, so of course, right. You've got a program inside the camera that does that. You've got AI inside the camera that does that. It's an edge compute device and has to be managed. Because it turns out on this mythical production line of chocolates, um, in the afternoon, they switch over and they make a different type of chocolate. So now the AI has to be programmed differently to examine a different type of chocolate. And you can imagine how this cycle of things has to be changed very regularly. So if you think about the old world of, say, security camera you install it it's fixed and it's never updated never touched now we're expecting a lot of the things that are that this, this edge these edge locations these far edge locations to be updated constantly with software with changes with ai models with data and um, that changes the whole dynamic of that and if you can imagine a, a factory scenario a factory floor scenario where there are literally hundreds of devices that are in this kind of state um you know, the average car production line um just in terms of the number of different configurations you can order for cars in, in the tens of thousands. You have different paint colors, different combinations of trim and et cetera. That, that kind of customizable factory floor environment is, is incredibly valuable, but comes at the cost of having to have technology that you know propels and manages all those far edge devices. So so we kind of recognize that as a, as a challenge, a headache of maybe therapy required. <laughs> but it, it's all about planning what those things look like. So now the good news is that when you 
when you plan a factory floor, you, it's usually a couple of years in planning and execution, right? So you you know all the components that are there. I think the the challenge in the multi-cloud piece and the headaches it's created is that the network teams aren't necessarily involved in that planning discussion. It's kind of after the fact. So an application got moved or a data store got moved and the network's just expected to work. You know, and I and I had these conversations internally inside IBM. It's like, guys, don't forget about the network. The, ne the network is not magic. Just because you think it connects everywhere, it, it doesn't. Yeah. Um, and then the Mac. I, you know, um, we so there are we're still kind of looking for some of the applications that are going to drive um, adoption there, and I, I don't think that's happened yet. Um, the the interesting thing um, is is how um, we, when we look at things like 5G, how they will actually have an impact on, on Mac. And I think this is really interesting. So um, so fixed mobile access. So the idea that you know we'll put 5G um, into rural areas and we'll get coverage and everybody can have fast internet. That's great. Now, the, the more interesting short-term application as that gets rolled out is actually in metro areas. Um, and you know, who'd have thought, right? So you've got blanket coverage of fiber in, say, Manhattan. Mm -hmm. Why are the telcos blanketing Manhattan with 5G coverage so that you can get two or three gig of traffic? Well, because they want to provide resiliency for the retail stores, for the um, all of the businesses that are in kind of the Manhattan area, right? Um, I mean, if you count just the number of fast food joints that are in lower Manhattan, it's in the hundreds, right? <laughs> And, and so the earlier you know, question about you know, COVID, right, and, and how that impacted, it affected things, right? One of the, the really interesting about retail was that um, the assumption was the network was not reliable. And therefore, you had to have your retail store work even when um, the network was down. So people could still go and order a McDonald's or a Wendy's or a KFC, right? COVID changed that because people used an app to go pre-order. So if you couldn't order from one fast food joint, you'd just go to another app and another and, and pick your food up there. So it made the network an absolute essential, reliable requirement. Um, and so how do you provide resiliency to a retail store? Um, aside from the fiber coming in, you provide 5G because that 5G is kind of being um, aired in, beamed in from multiple directions. So you've got, you've got resiliency in that environment. So why is that important to Edge? Well, it turns out that once the network is highly reliable or permanently reliable, you don't need on-premise compute to the same level. So that server that's tucked away, you know, under some desk somewhere that's now accumulated grease and the fans like right, struggling yeah. <laughs> them through, right? That doesn't need to be there. Where is the best place for that? Well, you need high resiliency and low latency, so that ends up being in the Mac environment. So essentially by providing this, this blanket kind of high performance network in metro and um, urban areas, we get the resiliency that the network's previously been missing unless you decided to dig up the street in two different directions and have two different fibers and all that incredibly expensive thing for something that's just now, um, you know, a couple hundred dollars for a, for a box that does this, right? Um, so that's that's the, the sea change that, that we at IBM think will drive um, adoption of Mac as these applications get put, put back there. So now the question becomes for the telcos, um, do you just basically convert your 
um, central office to allow AWS and Azure and, and all different cloud players to come in and, and just operate there? Or do you provide your own cloud service um, and are you competing with them? Or do you divide your data center up? And, and this is the, the big, big business question. And every telco seems to be taking a different approach to how this looks. Um, and that's kind of, kind of fascinating, if you like, is, is, is that um, if they're going to provide their own services, how are they going to get to the, 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 the kind of scale that's necessary? And are they really competing with AWS or not in that environment? It's, so anyway, I think the jury's out on that and we're going to spend a lot of time kind of learning what the best approach is this year. It is kind of crazy to think that somebody's... Um... Uh, you know, edge computing strategy in 2023 is informed by a uh, property that they purchased in the seventies you know, for, <laughs> for central office reasons. That's, but, that's right. But it, it, know, it is fascinating. But that is, that is kind of how it works in telco. Um, uh, yeah. Kelsey, did you have something? Cause I, I have a question about something that's not related to McDonald's or chocolate or, or edge computing. Um, no, I mean, do you have it. any ideas how to fix my printer over here? No. <laughs> Okay. No, I don't have anything right now. <laughs> uh, the the uh, the other sort of so obviously, like you were saying, you know, it, one of the the big five G uh, opportunities for telcos is not just pr providing that connectivity, but learning how to interwork with multi cloud environments and then providing the right kind of edge resources, you know, for the right kind of application. Um, because they're the telcos are so uh, uh, you know uh, looking forward to you know people connecting in different ways and using more connectivity. Um, what are your opinions on how the metaverse uh, plays into the telco you know uh, business model as it's as it stands now? And what do you think has to um, has to change for telcos to sort of uh, set themselves up well to be uh, participants in that, uh, I guess, economy, if, if maybe that's a bit strong because we're, right. we're mostly theoretical now. But, <laughs> but right. do, do you see them as having, having a strategically uh, a good spot, you know, for when metaverse applications start to take off? Well, I, I think it's about, so, so to your real estate point, yeah, they're in the right locations because low or lower latency will be really important. Um, I think at IBM, we, we, we're kind of looking at the metaverse from a how it enables business and how it enables um, worker productivity and things like that. And a lot of those things um, we're looking at are tend to be, or we're focused on it, uh, in the augmented reality space. Um, and really having a helper, if you like, having AI and, a, and visual kind of overlays help you. So whether you're repairing a, a car, whether you're repairing um, the chocolate factory machine that's just broken down, right? What you want is for that that information to be, oh yeah, to, to, to turn this, um, you know, ratchet this three times to the left and then pull this out and, and like instructions, if you like, as you're going through it. And so those types of things absolutely drive, you know, productivity, um, through through works and they become the how does it get done right every time, right? The, the visual inspection to say um, yes, this job's been done right, or yes, we know what these components are, are. So when we think about those applications, there is a, a need to have you know very real time and very low latency information so that the overlays that the, the visual representation for augmented reality require don't 
don't get delayed <laughs> as your frame of reference moves. So how right. do you keep the thing over over the, the part that you're supposed to pick up or touch next? And so we, we do see that um, application as being, as being relevant, right? And today that's solved largely by having compute on-premise. And again, you know, this is something that, that you don't want compute on-premise unless you really have to. So if right. it can be placed somewhere else, it means that it doesn't doesn't break, it doesn't get dirty, it doesn't have all the challenges that it, that, that represents. Um, so that 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 we really see as the 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 kind of business future of Metaverse, at least in the in the short term, right? And and the other things like you know meeting in a virtual room, completely in the Metaverse as a business. Um, you know we, we we know how Zoom works. We know how well even this podcast works, right? It's it's an extension of that that works pretty well without edge compute mm -hmm. um, because you're in a completely different frame of, 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 of reference versus when you overlay real world with virtual reality or augmented reality that's when the late low latency requirements really kick in so it's a kind um, of really interesting, interesting dynamic yeah yeah it does it, it, it definitely um i think maybe uh again that's just maybe another demand driver for things like you know the the low latency of 5G or private 5G or what what have you for businesses. That's oh, right. That's right. Yeah, and on the private 5G topic, I mean, I as, sorry, you, <laughs> I can key off that as you as you mentioned this. That sure. that's the other interesting dynamic um, that we're seeing start to play out this year, um, which mm. is that um, in large campus environments or very distributed environments like ports is a good example, or mining, you know, they've already been using. Um, private networks for a while, um, but they haven't had the bandwidth um, that's necessary. And it's also typically where Wi-Fi doesn't work great. Right. So we see this kind of overlap between public 5G and private 5G that's going to be really important. Um, and um, the, the way it's going to play out, uh, it's, it's kind of, there's a lot of unresolved issues here. Um, if you think about all the devices that are going to land um, on a factory floor or in a port, that are going to be 5G connected. They, they ship out of the factory, not with Wi-Fi, but with 5G. Question is, when they land, right, and they're installed and they're turned on for the first time, what network do they connect to, right? So they've come out of a factory in Taiwan, and do you think there's going to be a relationship with a with a, 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 a telco in the US or in Europe for wherever that device lands? Right. Um, and so you don't want to have to have somebody manually program it to be configured on the 5G network. You want to have that to happen automatically. And so, um, you know, there's no way that a small manufacturer in Taiwan that ships you know, CNC machines is going to have relationships with every telco on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, so there are some really interesting challenges. If you talk to some of the large telcos, they'll say, well, we're going to provide our services and partner all around the world and do this. Yeah. They have geographic constraints. They can't do that. Yeah. Um, so what you want to happen is that device lands, it connects to some public 5G, it registers and then bonds with, because it knows it's now who owns it, who's registered and so on. Now it bonds with the private 5G network. And so you've got this overlap, right? So if it runs out of out of connectivity, I don't know, the far extremes of your campus, it drops onto the private, on public 5G and vice versa. But it, it also drives this really interesting challenge of, of, well, who owns the connectivity to the device? And how does that get managed? So, for example, right, um, a, a, a coffee machine um, will have five G in it going forward, right? Think about that chipset's going down. That, Great, that, right? So <laughs> now that coffee machine may be not the one that goes in your home, but the one that goes in the banking lobby, 
Um, So when you're waiting for, you know, your appointment with the bank, you know, you get free coffee, right? Now you want to have somebody service that when it runs out of coffee or milk or whatever. Now, whose network does it connect to? Does it connect to the banking network? Does it connect to the public 5G network or some overlap? And who's responsible for the security protocols of that? Right. Right. It's it's a really interesting dynamic. And to the ultimate extreme, right, Um, Kelsey, your printer, right? (laughs) It's yeah. constantly right. flashing back there. Always flashing. <laughs> Does that just fit with five G? Yeah. Right. And so it, it, it you know, and, and therefore it, it updates. And you know, you, you get free toner. Well, for, you know, free, you get paid up toner happen every time it's about to run out, and all those right. things just in time. Right? So the supply chain, I think, is really interesting for the for the dynamics of, of, of how and where these devices start connecting, and, and the industry really hasn't through, thought through all the issues yet. Yeah. Yeah, because they're 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 sort of fixated on just the raw connectivity end of it. And what you're saying is there's a whole world of networking and layers of permissions that need to happen in between there. And then how do you do that in such a way that um to the user or the purchaser of said coffee machine or whatever, it feels completely like something that's been thought through and not some side project they have to embark on uh, to <laughs> It's, a, it's an afterthought, right? So, so the more um, we can make sure that the folks who are developing the apps and the, and the, the protocols and things that, that, that live on these devices, they understand all these issues and they don't ship that coffee machine without thinking through it or the, the chocolate printing machine. All of these things become important to the to the to the, the management of it, so that we don't keep sending the, our network teams into therapy, right? Right. <laughs> like I button that up. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, do you do you foresee? Uh, you know, we're talking about the supply chain a little bit. Um, the cost for um, you know the, the chips and modems and things for five G is is that going to um, increase or decrease this year? What what are your thoughts? So um, so last year the price of five G chip, um, just the chip, not associated things, um, was about forty dollars on average. Um, for the average chip that goes in a smartphone. Uh, we think that's going to halve this year. So we think it's going to be $20 um, by the end of the year and will you know, drop again um, in the following year. And so you know, what that will do, a couple of things. So we expect that the majority of smartphones that get sold by the end of this year will be 5G, just naturally because the price points are there. Sure. Um, but it also starts meaning that, the, that more IoT devices, more things get um, 5G chips. Interestingly, a lot of the, the low-end IoT-type devices that have been shipping, obviously, for a long time, but keep shipping, um, things like um, smart um, readers for uh, electricity supply and gas and so on, they run on 2G because the 2G chips run at about 2 to $3 each. Right. And so we have this really interesting, bizarre environment where the telcos can't turn off the 2G networks in some markets because of IoT. Yeah, they can they can kill three G. They'll kill four G, but they can't kill two G. Yeah, um, and, and because the low volume of data, then that was sufficient, right? So, um, so we will see five G kind of eventually get to that point. Um, but uh, and this is why kind of industrial devices come first. If, if you've got an industrial device or a, you know, a car or something, having five G in it from a, from a, the cost of the total product is tiny. Yeah, um, but. Once you get to uh, a tiny sensor or a reader, then you know you need to be in the one to two dollar space for it to, for it to play out. Yeah, and, and that that's that's a great point because I think that's where that um, I think we've all missed uh, or there's a 
misinterpretation of when we say connected devices, sometimes people will assume intelligence or autonomy or something like that with all these devices. And actually, sometimes it's just purely just dumb diagnostic stuff happening in the background that nobody cares about, but it's incredibly, you know, essential and maybe makes the business model more efficient, but it has to connect to something, you know, and... Well, that's right. And and the software on that device still has to be updated for security vulnerabilities and right, secured yeah. and all those other things, right? So there yeah. is no more, you know, chip and forget in a, in our connected world anymore. And, and and that whole supply chain, not of the physical equipment, but of how the software gets updated and managed and who controls it and who, who's responsible for it is 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 a, is a lifetime problem. And, and these things are going to be in our in our world and in our lives for you know ten, twenty plus years. And as, as we wrap this interview, um, the last thing we need to kind of cover is, Kelsey, have you tried unplugging the printer and unplugging it? <laughs> I do that all the time for whatever reason. It will print like a couple things and then it does this disco ball thing where it's just like, time to party. I did my job. It's really annoying. <laughs> See, you're, you're, uh, well, your friends at IBM will, 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 will talk you through something at some point, yeah. I'm sure. If not, if we'll you can have, just send have, me some chocolates. That, that also works. Well, an augmented reality, you know, how to fix right. it. Right. Like, yeah. Schematic so she can repair it herself. Right. <laughs> oh, fun. Uh, Andrew, thanks so much for uh, for taking the time. We do we do appreciate it. That's been it's been great. Really enjoyed. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Kelsey. Thanks, Phil.